Before we begin, just a quick content warning. This episode features a discussion about suicide, both as part of the story and in real life. Hello, I'm Adam Leslie and welcome to Cardboard Cinema Club, the podcast in which I invite along a guest to chat about one of the more interesting and under-discussed films out there in the world of cinema. And of course, we're all adults here. It's a film podcast. There'll be spoilers. You know that. Today we'll be looking at the 1973 sequel to Lindsay Anderson's highly regarded 1968 public schoolboy film, If It's Oh Lucky Man! have a friend on whom you think you can rely, you are a lucky man. If you found the reason to live on and not to die, you are a lucky man. Preachers and poets and scholars don't... And to talk about Oh Lucky Man, I'm joined by the legendary Tyler Adams, host of the highly esteemed Goon Pod. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Adam. What a lovely uh, introduction. Thank you very much. And how is the world of Goon Pod? It's going from strength to strength. As we're recording tomorrow, there's a new episode dropping. Dropping. I sound like a pro, don't I? Um, <laughs> using the, the, the old lingo. Dropping out the back of a horse. <laughs> In case people don't know, I'm not going to. I'll do a bit of a plug at the end, but it's, it's a podcast which just, just covers uh, anything that has a goon or goons in it, i.e., Milligan's Seeking Sellers Benting. And um, tomorrow there's an episode dropping, uh, which is on the film. I'm sure, you're aware of it, Adam. The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins. Of course, yeah. Uh, from from 1971, which I would argue, which I would argue is is a better film about the Seven Deadly Sins than than David Finch's Seven. It, it's an argument I'd lose. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's it's a it's a rollicking. I wouldn't say it's a rollicking good film. It's a rollicking film. <laughs> and uh, on Friday, I'm actually going to be recording a, a special episode with the legendary audio producer Dirk Mags, who um, oh, fantastic! Who was involved with goon-related stuff in the '90s. So I'm looking forward to that. So it's all going very well. Well, we're talking about uh, Oh Lucky Man, which is a film that uh, I really like, but haven't seen in several years, so I'd forgotten that it's nearly three hours long. Mm. So it's it's quite an epic adventure, isn't it? So can you give us a uh, a very a very brief recap of the story? Yes, you're right. Oh, lucky man! It is a, a sprawling three-hour epic, I would say, um, episodic adventure musical. <laughs> sort of, although that that could conjure up something very different, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, there's music in it, and and the music is is quite front and center often. It is about a uh, character played by, um, I was going to say Malcolm McLaren, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Michael Travis. And obviously you, you mentioned that it's a follow, follow on from um, Lindsay Anderson's 1968 film, If, which is a fantastic film, um, in which McDowell plays uh, Mick Travis, but it's not the same character. Oh, is it not? Um, well, I kind of thought it, it right, was. Well, Right. The the Mick Travis of If is is cynical, he's rebellious, and he's a murderer, let's face it. Let's not, you know, bandy words here. 
Um, he, 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 he basically goes on a killing spree with his mates, doesn't he? Essentially, I know people moan about, you know, the laxity of the justice system, but I hardly imagine that five years on from the events of If, uh, the now uh, older Michael Travis would be getting a job in a coffee factory. Um, I hardly think it's the same, exactly the same character. Um, and, and Michael Travis of, of Oh Lucky Man is, he's not an innocent by any means, but it, it, in fact, he's, he's quite ambitious. He's very, he's, he's quite resourceful and he's got that kind of cunning, but he's quite trusting. Certainly at the big, certainly I'd say for the first three quarters of the film, he's quite trusting and, and in some cases quite naive, but he does develop into becoming quite an opportunist in in pursuit of well, status and wealth, really. But but he's not, he just, to me, he, he's not the same character as the character he played in, in If. And I understand, although I haven't seen it, that he also turns up as Michael Travis in um, Britannia Hospital. So I haven't seen that, so I can't really speak for what that character was like but in any case we have this character the central character michael travis who has a series of adventures essentially all over the british isles <laughs> um and he encounters I, th- I think the film is a critique on capitalism capitalism it seems to be doesn't it yeah and it's about how corruption is is all pervasive throughout most uh sections of society Almost, and Travis, as he as he goes through this film, he gradually sort of um, is moving up the social ladder, shall we say? Often just through lucky happenstance, and he himself becomes corrupted, or allows he allows himself to become corrupted, and and ultimately pays the price for it. But then there is, re- well, there I say redemption, but there is a you know there is a happy ending, so to speak but it's a very hard film to kind of sum up in a pithy... It really is. ...sort of um, paragraph or so. <laughs> On the subject of it being the same character, my reading of his performance as Mick Travis, because I think he's also referred to as Mick Travis in, in this film, uh, he's referred to as both, I think, is that even when Malcolm McDowell is playing that kind, because he has these big blue eyes, obviously, so he has this kind of wide-eyed and very... He's, he plays it very earnest. He's this very earnest character, but... Even then, I think there is that clockwork orange sort of veiled contempt behind it all. I don't know if that's just from having seen Clockwork Orange, where he's playing this character who, who, who has this underlying sarcasm to everything. Even when he's being very well behaved, he has this, this kind of simmering, sarcastic contempt under his performance. And I was kind of seeing that in this character as well, that... Because obviously in If, he is playing this very rebellious character, this, this public schoolboy who's, who's extremely rebellious... So I'm kind of seeing that in that character as well, but because he's also quite ambitious now and he wants to get on in the world. When he first turns up at the coffee factory to to start his new job and he's very, very, uh, he's extremely earnest. In particular, there's the coffee, the weird coffee tasting scene where he's seduced by his boss. Mm. And it's it's slightly gross if you're a bit germaphobic. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the, the manner in which he swills the coffee in his mouth almost seems very sarcastic in that Alex Delage um, Clockwork Orange way. So I, there's just something about him that has that contempt. Well, he doesn't have any trouble with with women. No. Making themselves available to him and without him having to ask. He is a lucky he man. Be, yeah. Um, He's a lucky th- man in no, every respect, I think, isn't he? Well, he is. I think with the only exception being Mona Washbourne, every woman in this film 
throws herself at him more or less. And I, actually, I haven't seen if for a number of years now. I'm very familiar with it, but I'm just, you know, as I said earlier about the climax of that film with the um, gunning down everybody. As I was saying it, I was kind of thinking, actually, was that meant to be a dream <laughs> or what? Or was it meant to be actually reality? Um, I can't remember how Lindsay Anderson or what he intended it to be. Was it meant to be, re- you know, real life or was it sort of a a dream state that Mick Travis was in. Yeah, it's almost like reality spooling out at the end, isn't it? I think both films sit in that kind of genre, which I would say is almost surrealism. It kind of dips into outright surrealism a couple of times, this film. There's a, it does. A couple, one or two very, very weird things, but mostly it's just in the tone of it. it, it tonally, it feels like an incredibly weird film, but the, it very rarely do actually outright weird things happen. It reminded me of... Um, I don't know if you have seen... I think it's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, the Louis Bunuel film. No, I haven't. No. It's the one about some very uh, wealthy upper, upper crust uh, prisons, I think, which has a very similar tone of being... It feels incredibly surreal and weird without actually weird things happening in particular. Uh, certainly in the first half, I must admit, I, I watched it late at night and, <laughs> and drifted off, so I didn't I didn't see the last the second half on the most recent viewing. So, for example, in that, there's a bit where these these gentlemen, these uh, I can't remember if they're businessmen or politicians, are having a meeting uh, in the middle of Paris, and then one of them spies this young woman selling toy dogs on the street outside. So he gets his rifle and starts shooting at the dogs, these little toy dogs. So that seems like a really surreal moment until he explains, oh, I recognise her as being a a member of a well-known terrorist group and she might be here to assassinate me. So I was just just shooing her away, basically. So it goes from being this really incongruous, almost Dardaist scene in which he just randomly starts shooting at a young woman selling dogs through his window because it's, it's quite a sedate film generally until little things like that happen. And this film's quite similar. It occasionally tips all the way over but not often yeah it, it's, it's 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 would you call it a satire mm. it is i suppose it's a satire in wet in a way it's um as i said it's very episodic and, and one thing i noticed re-watching it for this it's almost exactly three hours in length and so i, was, I was started watching it and, and and exactly 45 minutes in uh, we get i was going to say alex we get nick traveling north He's been to the northeast. He's checked himself into the the bed and breakfast with the um, uh, amorous landlady. <laughs> He's been and, seduced uh, by two older ladies within the space of half an hour. But I noticed, and I noticed that when he's, he's he's summoned up to Scotland, so we get this. We get a lot. There's, there's a lot of sort of um, what do you call them? Intertitles. Mm. There's a sequence which is just titled North, and it's it's sort of smack bang forty five minutes into the film. And that sequence is where he arrives at this government, a secret government complex. I'm not quite sure what is going on there. And then that, that sequence lasts exactly 15 minutes. Then there's a 30-minute sequence. Oh, really? Which is, which is um, essentially when he goes and uh, ends up in the hospital. And then we have it exactly, and I'll come back to this, exactly at the 90-minute mark, he is um, hit by Alan Price's van and gets a lift back down to London. Oh, so it's a metric film. Well, yeah. I mean, it's we then have another 30-minute sequence and then a 15-minute sequence. I've just jotted them down. You know, it just it just seemed to me quite neat these little these little episodes that occurs that occur to to Mick. Which is possibly why some of them go on a bit <laughs> because they have to they have to be an exact amount of time. Well, 
yeah i don't think it's bloated i don't think i love it i love its scope and i i think despite it being three hours long it didn't feel to me and i didn't watch it all in one sitting i will admit but i watched it on the same day i did have a break but it doesn't feel indulgent it doesn't feel too long it doesn't to me it doesn't have it has a bit but it doesn't have a lot of fat or uh, um, sections which i think they could lose no there's a couple of bits i trim but generally yeah you wouldn't want to lose that sweep a kind of epic sweep of this man's life (laughs) there's one bit that they could have lost perhaps um featuring arthur lowe and i think well in fact two sequences (laughs) featuring arthur lowe thinking about it um (laughs) well we should probably say what it is because one of the features of this film uh for anyone who hasn't because possibly people might find our company so charming that they'll listen to this without having seen the film you never know indeed fans of goompod will will ravenously tune in for this oh yeah they'll be all about (laughs) this absolutely one of the features of this film is that most of the actors appear repeatedly as different characters throughout so there's a handful of actors still quite a lot of actors but there's even more characters so most of them will be two or three or four different characters and arthur lowe turns up i think a third time fully blacked up it's apparently uh, lindsay anderson wasn't keen on the idea but someone talked him into it and i, I want to know who this person is it's probably Arthur Lowe. Good, well, it'd be Arthur Lowe. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's funny just because it's Arthur Lowe who's blacked up. I mean, because he seems quite similar to Captain Mannering, his personality anyway. He seems quite a straightforward actor. He doesn't come across as one of life's eccentrics or larger than life characters necessarily. There he is. Putting on this. this Say what you like about Arthur Lowe. He didn't have great range, I suppose, did he, really? But here he is in this sequence, fully blacked up. Not only that, but. All the other black people in that scene are actual black people. Mm-hmm. So he's the only one in, in makeup, which is it adds that extra layer of awkwardness. And you wouldn't do it today. This. Yeah, it's that sequence, even without Arthur Lowe and blackface, I, I could have trimmed down or even ex- excluded from the film completely yes. because it's, 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 it's essentially the Ralph Richardson character who's this um, terrible man, this uh, man who owns half the copper mines in the world. He's being courted by this president of a newly emerged African country, Zingala or Zingara, or a newly formed country, something like that anyway. And um, basically they're pitching to him for his, they they want his um, patronage. Well, that's what I took took from it. Yes, it's it's something political. You you see the meeting in real time and it goes, it it does last quite a long time. I think I'd have taken that aspect out and also the fact that it went into maybe some areas that weren't very comfortable to look at. Well, yeah, because they're they're talking about this, essentially what I think is napalm, PL45. They They call it honey. honey. One of the good things about that scene is you do see television's Jeffrey Palmer. Um. <laughs> yeah, he's always welcome. <laughs> yes. Um, he turns up earlier in the film in the hospital and he's got a fake tash on. I will also say about the, the previous sequence, that, and it's possibly a warning to anyone who's thinking of watching this film, that, that that particular sequence with the political stuff, it does feature real-life photographs of horrific things, including so, yeah, kind of napalm victims, and they do, yes. they do yeah. look like they're probably actual photographs. So yeah, it, yeah. it not only was it quite a long scene, it was also quite difficult to watch from that for, for something that is also a musical, essentially musical comedy. It had horrific real life things in it as well. So that if, for anyone who's not got stomach for that sort of thing, that, I'm flagging that up. So I could have done without that as well. Yeah, the scene was set up to make it 
manifest to the audience that this was a group of terrible people, essentially, corrupt. And Ralph Richardson character, what's his name? Sir, what was his name? Sir, Sir James? It's something like that. I forget now, actually. I didn't, there's, there's so much going on. It's, it's hard to make a note of all of it. It's funny, funny enough, actually, and I, I don't know if this was intentional, but there's a, there's a, there's a moment in that scene where Sir James, played by Ralph Richardson, uh, I think when he first greets Arthur Lowe in blackface, and makes reference to the fact that he was he was at school 40 years previously with Arthur Lowe's brother. The implication being that would have been the early 30s, Cambridge or Ox- Oxford, which at that period, at that time, was, you know, was famous for, um, well, it was around the time of Burgess and Philby and Maclean. So you wonder whether the implication was that Sir James, in his youth, was a member of the party. And that has just become this you know, monstrous capitalist in the years to follow. And there's a reference to the party earlier on in the film, isn't there, when um, Travis is being interrogated. That's true, yes. After he's he's finds himself at the military installation and gets arrested by the military police there and ends up being interrogated, even though he's just trying to sell coffee at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The film sort of has this sweep of him starting off as a, a low-level coffee salesman. And then it is just about him being... The, the title is sort of sarcastic and sort of not sarcastic in a way because he is a very lucky man, but then also he has lots of unlucky things happening to him. The very opening of the film is Malcolm McDowell playing a different character. It's a version of himself playing a, 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 a coffee picker. Yes. So a, a peasant in some unnamed country who's caught stealing and gets his hands amputated as punishment for stealing coffee beans. So that always hovers in the background. And because he's played by Malcolm McDowell as well, you, you're kind of reminded that no matter what happens to Malcolm McDowell, he's always a lucky man because he's not that Malcolm McDowell. Yes. And I suppose that goes for most of us who live in the comfortable Western world that we're not living that kind of life. So it has that as an undercarriage. Yeah, he does. He, he lurches from one disaster into good fortune very often. So we have, we have, he gets chosen to replace Oswald early on in the film. Oswald, who's left the Northeast. He's, he's this legendary coffee rep that we, I don't think we ever meet Oswald, do we? He's disappeared. So because Travis has charmed, I don't know, what is she? The HR lady, Rachel Roberts, who's fantastic in this film. Yeah, Roberts, I don't know if she's HR. She's, she's one of the managers. She's in charge of recruitment anyway, recruiting the, the new uh, salesman. Imperial product is good, but people don't buy things just because they're good. They have to believe, and you have to inspire that belief. You have to believe. Remember the words of William Blake. A sincere belief that anything is so will make it so. Sincerity, honesty. Mr. McIntyre, Mr. Travis, Mr. Greasy. Thank you, Mr. Spoken. Thank you. Hello, Mr. McIntyre. Smile. Give with all your heart. Don't think of yourself. Relax those cheek muscles. Smile, Mr. McIntyre. Mr. Travis. Morning, Mrs. Rowe. Now that is sincerity. That is a completely sincere smile. If I was a buyer and... These were two travellers. I definitely buy from the guy I like. I definitely buy from the sincere personality. 
I'm definitely going to buy from you, Mr. Travis. Yes, and because because McDowell, or because Travis is head and shoulders better than the other reps, than the other trainees, including... Um, ben Harris. Ben Harris from Heidi High. <laughs> um, Brian Pettifer, who was in If. He was the poor lad in If that was always getting bullied. A lot of actors from If are in this, aren't they? Because um, Arthur Lowe's in If as well, isn't he? And, and I forget the actress's name, who's... She's kind of like the younger actress, Christine Noonan. That's right. Yeah. Well, she yeah she's she's she has a very significant part in If, and she only has a what two, she has two brief appearances in A Lucky Man, sadly. Um, but yeah, you know you've got you've got Graham Crowden. He was in If. Graham Crowden plays both the what do you I'll just call him a mad scientist type character in A Lucky Man. He's a he heads up this research institution doesn't he or research clinic which i'm sure we'll talk about in a bit and he also but he also appears as this um very anguished professor stewart um who's who's seems to have been dismissed from the company that 25 uh, years of work yes (laughs) yes 25 years of my life 25 years wasted 25 years down the drain oh god all wasted Professor, please, you, you must restrain bastard, you swine! <laughs> 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 Professor! <laughs> Help me! I won't go! I'll never go! Don't let them do it! Miss <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Hunter, too valuable a barley wine for Professor Stewart. The reason I mention that, though, is that um, in If, Graham Crowden played a teacher called Stewart. Oh, so again, okay. he he has he has you know taken that name with him, and also very notably Peter Jeffrey, who was the headmaster, of course, in and and is the heads up the coffee company in in A Lucky Man, and also inappropriate prison governor <laughs> later on in the film. <laughs> well, Travis, you're free, free to rejoin the world of decent, ordinary men and women who are content to earn their daily bread by the sweat of their brows. The Brotherhood of Man, Travis. I know where I went wrong, sir. I've been thinking. Good lad. I've read books, and I see things differently now, sir. Well, now, tell me. Have you, uh, have you any plans? No plans, sir. I just want to get out there and learn to be a proper human being, sir. I'd like to, I'd like to read you something. I think it may help. One that never turned his back, but marched breast forward. Never doubted clouds would break. Never dreamed that wrong would triumph. Held we fall to rise, sleep to wake. I'd like you to have this. It belonged to my grandmother, but you may find it'll help you through the difficult days that lie ahead. Thank you very much, sir. I've sensed the spark of idealism in you. And I can move mountains, you know that. Hmm? Oh, for a man like you, Travis. Michael. For a boy like you, you're still young. Everything is possible. The world is your oyster. I can see you stripped, building motorways. You have eyes like Steve McQueen. Did anyone ever tell you that? 
And of course, uh, one of the, the films we talked about on Goon Pod was The Bed Sitting Room, which actually has quite a similar feel to it. And it has Arthur Lowe and... Mona Washburn. Yes, yeah. it has this collection of familiar British faces and character actors in this sprawling, strange landscape. I mean, The Bed Sitting Room is a more outright strange film. It's more surreal. It's like, yes. It's like by several hundred percent, it's more surreal. <laughs> yeah. It also features, um, getting back to if, it features Richard Warwick, The Bed Sitting Room, who he played the um, love interest of Rita Tushingham. And he was uh, he was one of um, Mick Travis's uh, comrades right, of course. at the school in If. So I would say that absolutely, you've got if you've got the bed sitting room and this film, they're nice sort of companion pieces to each other. Bed sitting room could almost be the sequel to this if it didn't already have its own sequel. Mm. True. A spoiler for anyone who hasn't heard that episode of Goon Pod and might intend to. I wasn't super keen on bed sitting room. I think the main reason being it didn't have a focal central character True. who seemed like a yeah. who seemed like a real human being, and even though. I keep wanting to call him Alex as well because he's a very similar character. Even though Mick is quite heightened, he's still a, somebody you're following through this whole thing and you're invested in him and you're seeing it all through his eyes. There's the echo of Clockwork Orange running through this film because you've got Warren Clark in a number of small roles in Oh Lucky Man. And obviously he was he was he played Dim, didn't he, in Clockwork Orange. There's a torture scene in Oh Lucky Man, obviously... There was and, and in, yeah, the experimentation scene and and his head contraption he's wearing and his head looks very similar. Yes, and he jumps out a window. I jumps think out a in, window in uh, Clockwork Orange. Yes, he? he goes to prison and is a model prisoner in both films. Yes, he's beaten up by homeless people in both films. Yes, he is, and you always think, you know, did Kubrick not try and sue for <laughs> when when was Clockwork Orange? Was that yeah, 73 that was seventy one. Seventy one. Yes, yeah. Mm. Um, also, Philip Stone, who plays his father, Clockwork yes. Orange, is also in this film playing several roles. He's a, he's always a welcome face. He's great in The Shining. That's his signature role, isn't it? As as uh, Mr. Grady. Yes, yes. But yes, he always turns up and is again one of these these uh, character faces that you see in a lot of these British films. I have a series of questions here that I'll I'll ask during the course of the the podcast. So the the first one is, I'll run these two together because they're actually quite similar. Why is the film important to you? And uh, do you remember when you first saw it and how you felt about it then? Yeah, I certainly do remember when I first saw it. And I'll answer that bit first, I think, because it probably answered the first bit as well, in a way. People that have not not heard Goompod and don't know me from Adam, (laughs) <laughs> no, no pun intended. Um, I mean, we're both Adams in our own way, aren't we? Well, yes, that we are. Yeah, um, but I was born and brought up in New Zealand, and I, I I lived there till I was sixteen, essentially sixteen, seventeen, really. When I was probably about fourteen or fifteen, I, I just lived with my dad. My mum had passed away, and I was at high school, and I my dad was a bit of a soft touch for letting me just skive off school, and. I remember very clearly, and, and this might make your socks roll up and down your legs, yeah, <laughs> Adam. Yeah. Um, but back in those days, we're talking the late 80s, TVNZ, there was two TV channels, and they would mostly play, because we didn't have a lot of homegrown t- telly content, so they would mostly play imported um, British, uh, Australian, or American TV shows and films. In the late 80s, they would often play films in the afternoons, sort of, you know, one o'clock till three o'clock or something like that, there'd be a film. One afternoon, they, when I happened to be off, quote, ill, they played Oh Lucky Man in the afternoon. Okay. <laughs> um, which, it is, it is a post-Watershed film. 
really. Isn't it really it? is. And and I don't suppose BBC One or BBC Two would have shown Oh Lucky Man at one o'clock in the afternoon. One would hope in the not. 80s. No. Um, the thing is, it's such a long film that I remember very clearly what they did was they split it over two days. And you remember what I said before about how there's a perfect midpoint where uh, Mick is hit by or just about hit by Alan Price and the band. And then um, they give him a lift down to London. That that comes at exactly the 90 minute mark. And that's that was the end of the first half that I saw. So, so, so they, they played it over two days. So I was off school for two days. They played the first half on the one day and then the, the second half the next day you know a lot of the content particularly like the stag film and um there's quite a bit of and not like you said about the victims of napalm all that sort of thing there's a there's a lot of content that you know if if a, you know a, a four-year-old was happened to be watching tv at that point you know it'd be quite disturbing i would have said i'm 48 47 i was disturbed yeah well that's the thing but they used to play all sorts of stuff on tv in the in the afternoon when i was a kid that would have automatically gone out post watershed in any other in any other time or country um but yeah no i really enjoy i remember really enjoying it really enjoying it and i don't know why because i was whatever age 14 15 possibly i enjoyed some of the stuff because it was a bit you know, titillating i guess maybe when i was that age um, but i don't remember that as such but i just i really liked i remember finding travis the character of travis really compelling and um malcolm's performance just really really compelling and i didn't get bored at all by it at all and it didn't seem slow i felt that it was a perfectly formed film about i don't know six seven years later when i was living in north wales by that point uh, i got a job in a record shop in our price records in Bangor, North Wales. And during my time there, I ordered in two copies of the soundtrack of A Lucky Man, which I think is, I think the music in this film is is gorgeous. It is. And I bought, I ordered in the soundtrack one copy to buy for myself and one copy to have in stock uh, because we would have themed afternoons. So I, I had a copy in the store, so, to, you know, and, I, and whenever I could, I would, um, I would gain control of the CD player and I'd put on A Lucky Man and everyone else hated it, but I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been a film that I've enjoyed watching and got a lot got a lot out of. But weirdly, until, you know, um, for the purposes of this, I hadn't seen it for probably about, let's say, I think about maybe 25 years, maybe. And I don't know why. I don't know why, Adam, because I just, I mean, it is available on DVD. It is available to stream on Amazon Prime. But I just never got around to watching it again until I did for this. And I'm really, really glad that you asked me because I oh, excellent. loved it again. Yeah, I mean, it's a time commitment. Yes. There's a lot of it. There's a lot of this film. So it was a long time ago, but I think this is the film that I watched on my first evening after I'd moved away from home. After I'd moved to uh, Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough in the mid-90s, away from leafy rural Buckinghamshire. I haven't been to Middlesbrough since the mid-90s, so I don't know what it's like now. I think it's probably a lot nicer, but in the mid-90s it was horrible. <laughs> It was it was quite grim. There goes all your Middlesbrough listeners. <laughs> bye bye, Paul. <laughs> I'd moved there in, in with a, a couple of a couple of housemates, my classmates from film school. This is when I'd moved out to do film school. So this this guy Tom Carr that I was sharing a house with, uh, he'd brought a video player with him and a telly. I didn't have any such luxuries. And I remember watching two films with him in his room one of them was the fisher king and i know that was later and this was the other one and i think i'm pretty sure this was the one that we watched the first 
night we both moved in. And it's sort of blowing my mind a bit. See, I don't think it's a film that I could watch with anybody cold, if you know what I mean, who hadn't, who, who didn't already know it. I think it would be a difficult film to sit down with, for example, my wife and watch. I think she'd probably bail out probably 20 minutes in. <laughs> we we but, were um, pretentious 19-year-old film students, though. I think one thing we should... Um, mentioned about this film that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that you see the soundtrack being recorded as part of the film it's not actually being recorded but they're they're miming as if they're recording the soundtrack and you even see Lindsay Anderson the director sitting in on it and this is actually scenes within the film it cuts to Alan Price and his band recording the songs for the film which is which is an interesting touch, and I I like it just because you get to see Alan Price. You do. Who I often think, and you might just shout me down here. I think he often looks a little bit like Ray Davis. Yeah, sometimes. no, I can see that. Is the band meant to be kind of the Greek chorus? Yes. In this, yeah. So the the the, the songs mirror often what's going on. It was originally the the plan was to Lindsay Anderson was going to make a documentary about Alan Price on the road Alan Price at the time was playing a lot of cover versions and they, it fell through because they couldn't afford to license the cover versions so instead he got him to uh, write some original songs for this film and then did both films so he made this film and also showed Alan Price with his band in the film so it's quite yeah. two for one you remember I said about being these little episodes these little sequences that would often be 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 15 minutes <clears throat> and you, often each sequence would be punctuated by Alan Price and the band. You, that's the point where you know, okay, so that scene is, is that sequence has ended. Now we're on to the next sequence now. One of the things about this film is, is it will occasionally fold in upon itself. And one of those moments is when, as we've already mentioned, Alan Price's touring van knocks over Mick, and so Alan Price also then becomes part of the narrative and. He falls in with the band and he and he makes friends with Helen Mirren, who I can't quite remember her role. Was she like journalist documenting them or something? I... No, she's she and I and I'd forgotten this until I watched it this time round. That she's essentially a very rich daddy's girl. Specifically, um, Ralph Richardson is her daddy in this. The the evil character played by Ralph Richardson is the rich girl that runs off to uh, join a rock and roll band, travel around with a rock and roll band, kind of thing. And she's just sort of drifting here and there. She doesn't need, you know, she doesn't need money. She's got the bank of daddy. She's not in the film very much, really, but she gets quite quite significant billing in the film. She makes an impression as well. Again, it's a, another instance of Mick gets, you know, invited to uh, travel in the van with the band and he's sat on the back seat and there's this someone under a large fur coat and it turns out to be Helen, Helen Mirren. He finds Helen Mirren under a coat. <laughs> who Who hasn't? um i read somewhere i think i was looking at imdb trivia so take it with a pinch of salt but because of the friendship he sparked with helen mirren on this film he later persuaded her to appear in caligula um which she never forgave him for. <laughs> <laughs> oh can i tell you very quickly my dad bless him and when we got a video recorder funny enough the first film he rented was the Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, of which, again, I mentioned before. But I remember him coming home one day from the video shop and he said, oh, I've got, um, I've rented this and it was, <laughs> and it was Caligula. But he rented it because he thought it was I, Claudius. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, um, he was soon put right on that score. <laughs> when he started watching. <laughs> what is it? Om. It means infinity. 
or Godhead. Are you a Buddhist? All religions are equally true. Breakfast. London. Biggest money market in the world. Did you know that? Ten thousand million pounds a day turnover. Ten thousand millions a day. And there's a thousand ways of making it, you know. It's just a question of picking the right one. Champagne. Of course. Glass palaces. Just look at them. One day I'll own one of those. You're very old-fashioned. What do you mean I'm old-fashioned? Well, all this stuff about money and owning things. If you want something, just take it. I always do. One of those films where it keeps interrupting itself. So you think it's going to, like, the drama is going to start panning out one way, and then something will just come in to completely derail it and move it off in a different direction, which I quite like. You, you're never quite sure where, where it's going to go next. Yeah, and there's a couple of what I would call overtly or, or out-and-out comedy bits, um, one being where he's at the top-secret facility where he's he's been strapped down in this chair by... Uh, Brian Glover makes being uh, tortured, uh, electrocuted, I, I gather, uh, some some form of electrocution um, in order for him to confess to some unknown crime. But then you have the wonderful Dandy Nichols again. Yes, of course. Also from Bed Sitting, Bed Sitting Room. Room yes. Looking resplendent in pink and she's pushing this tea trolley and, you know, she's giving them a, she's interrupting the interrogation to offer them a cup of tea and some bickies and things. And then she sort of looks across at Malcolm, at um, Travis. It says, does a young man want a cup of tea? <laughs> and Philip Stones with a shakes of city later, later. And she, she just kind of purses her lips and, you know, moves on. <laughs> sort of tonally quite restless, isn't it? it just, we'll just do whatever it fancies. We'll have a comedy bit now and now we'll do something that's really grim. And now we'll just, well, yeah, it has these strange dramatic cul-de-sacs. So immediately after he escaped, I think it's, it's that point, but it's, it's so kaleidoscopic, it can be difficult to remember the exact sequence. But I think it's after he escapes the facility, uh, which just explodes for some unknown reason, mm. because he's a lucky man. He then finds himself in a church service and is almost immediately breastfed by <laughs> some woman, which is the one point that it actually does become, or one of the few points it does become actually surreal. It turns into a Dali film. Well, yeah, but then you have the, uh, would you call it body horror? bit with that's the, the other point yes with the do you want to describe that seed so yes he signs up for experimentation to earn a bit of cash he's picked up by david dacre i think i think it's david dacre who picked no uh, warren clark that's it warren clark who yes warren clark picks him up uh, to he offers him a bit of money to do some medical experiments so he signs away his rights and uh, they're going to do some experiments but he goes a wandering which he's known to do occasionally he just sets off and wanders around the place uh, and he finds star wars as jeremy bullock in a hospital bed uh, do we want to spoil i don't know if we want to spoil this bit because this is the most startling bit in the film <laughs> it causes malcolm mcdowell to jump through a window yeah <laughs> it's one of the few times he actually loses his cool he has the confidence of a Tory minister. At some points, he appears to be one. True. With the old cigar. Uh, yes, and the angle. Hand. Yes. Mm. Mm. But at this point, he's still just not a notional coffee salesman. Mm. Uh, but this, yes, this is one of the few points he, he actually panics and loses his cool and screams and leaps out a window. If you don't want to know spoilers, major spoilers, spool ahead 
10 or 15 seconds but he discovers that Je- Jerry Bullock has had his head grafted onto the body of an enormous pig. Yeah. Hairy pig. A big hairy pig. And it's and quite for horrific. Some, for some reason, he's been put into a bed. <laughs> and it's played straight. I mean, it's it's a horrible scene. He's he's kind of quivering and Jerry Bullock acts it really well. It's a bit of a shame he's mostly known for being Boba Fett these days because he was also a very good actor and not just a man in a suit. He plays three roles in this film. He plays man with head on pig. He He's right at the end. He's the guy with the sandwich board um, walking around advertising the casting for the film. And right at the beginning, he's the guy, he's the cocky guy in the sports car that overtakes Mick and then ends up plowing into a, a lorry and... Um, carking it yeah that scene with the, the the sports car crash which is happens almost immediately that mick goes on the road as a coffee salesman these two policemen turn up one of who's one of whom is david dacre i forget who the other one was oh it's um edward peel oh what's he from i know the name what's he been in he was in juliet bravo i think is his most famous role this the guy driving the sports car has, has crashed into a grocery van and wiped himself out and the driver of the van and these two policemen turn up to essentially steal the things out of the grocery van. Mick offers to stay and be a witness and they say, no, no, you run along. Here, have a big cylinder of cheese. You're the only witness. Yes, I saw it. I can give you a statement. Don't bother. No need to detain the gentleman. Have my mother He's gone. Now Scarper. But what about him? Done for. Perforated kidneys. It was his fault. He was driving too fast. Oh, we can see what happened. We'll be witnesses, save you the trouble. Oh, it's no trouble. I can give you a statement. As far as we're concerned, it's a private accident. No one else involved, unless you give a statement. Then our chief constable might find you're involved. He might bring charges against you, using us as witnesses. Our word against yours. So, on your way, chummy. Unless you want booking for manslaughter. Here you are. Fair dues. Fair dues. There's a tone of underlying menace in there. The way that they are, they sort of send him on his way. But you, you get the impression if he'd argued with them or protested, he'd have probably ended up... Um, coming off the worst for it, shall we say. That's another Clockwork Orange parallel with the two thuggish mm. policemen. Yeah, I like that scene. That was that was quite a, a nice, threatening, menacing scene. Um, and it also reminded me of the film Weekend, the um, Jean-Luc oh, yeah. Godard film. And it, this feels like quite a European film. It has that late new wave feel, like Godard and... Bunuel. It's very satirical and very almost almost surreal. Yeah, you could wander into the room when this is playing on the telly without knowing what it is, and you might see Dandy Nichols or Brian Glover or even Arthur Lowe, whoever it might be, and you might think, oh, it's um and you could you can you'll be able to tell from the film stock, you know, just from the fashions that it's a British film from the 70s, and you might think, oh, it's one of those um, sitcom spin-offs or something like that at first. But but g- give it two minutes and you'll soon be disabused of that notion. <laughs> and I think, actually, that's possibly one of the differences between this and Bed Sitting Room, that I think Bed Sitting Room does feel quite like a British film, where this feels more like a European film. Mm. It does fit more closely in with 
late new wave and bed sitting room is a particularly surreal example of one of those late 60s early 70s quite swinging films that always inevitably had Pete and Dud in yes yes absolutely just wanted to ask you so we we get the 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 sequence the 20 minute sequence that kicks in at 2 hours 15 into the film where Travis is in court up in court and um we see the the judge who hands down the sentence. We see him receiving the cat and nine tails. Oh yes, I'd forgotten about that bit. That's very from Mona Washbourne. Yes, yes. yes. Um, but he he finds uh, so he sentences Travis to five years hard labour, and then as you said earlier, Travis emerges at the end of that time um, a, a changed man. And then you have him going to the East End. And I noticed that, did you watch this on streaming or what did you have on DVD? I've, or I've got it on DVD. Okay. So I'm watching it on Amazon Prime. And the moment it gets to the East End sequence, the film stock seems... Yes, I noticed this. Grainier and I want to say coarser. I don't know. It just seemed, it seemed like it had been um, stepped on or dragged through Definitely, a puddle or something. It's quite a picturesque film up until that yeah. point and particularly with the, like the rural city it's a very pristine looking film but i know what you mean it's got a much more documentary and slightly washed out and gritty grainy grimy feel and i can part. only imagine it was deliberate because it's the east end and that's that's what lindsay anderson was setting out to um to i'm glad you noticed that i wasn't sure if it was just me also wanted with regards to this bit i would say that for me not necessarily my favorite scene but a scene that i was most affected by or it just it just sort of it's most memorable i suppose or one of the most memorable and we haven't really mentioned her at all or only in passing we've got rachel the actress rachel roberts are you aware of rachel roberts yes i've i watched picnic at hanging rock not long ago great great film yeah isn't it excellent yes she was also in i i enjoy her performance in sydney lumet's murder on the orient express and she's been in many things she was married i want to say she was married to rex harrison at one point and i think it wasn't a happy marriage at all so she plays the the, the lady at the coffee factory at the beginning who shares um oral coffee oral coffee with with, with, with mick <laughs> just not hygienic i don't approve yeah, yeah. and then it, i think she's she turns up as she doesn't really have a speaking part, but she's one of the um, delegation from the African country Zing- Zingala or Zingara. But then she has this role. So so Mick turns up at the East End and he's he's completely, you know, he's down to his last sort of few quid, which he gives away to the Sully army. And then he gets pickpocketed and, and whatnot. But then you see this panic going on at this sort of rundown tenement building. And there's all these old <laughs> East End women shouting from the windows. I noticed Mona Washbourne was one of them. And I was looking out for Rita Webb. You know Rita Webb? No. Well, you'd recognise her if you, if you saw her. She always played um, coarse old Cockney ladies in <laughs> sitcoms and things like that back in the day. They did have Patsy Smart, who is is always a, a sort of <laughs> an East End crone. The hullabaloo, hullabaloo is all because there's um, there's a lady in one of the flats called Mrs. Richards, and she's going to, she's locked herself in and she's going to kill herself. This scene, I mean, what did you think of this scene? Yeah, it's quite an effective scene. Quite an affecting scene and effective. You do see Malcolm's character at his most earnest. Yeah. Uh, when he's, he's desperately trying to talk this very um, matter-of-fact woman who's just suicidal through poverty out of doing it. And I don't know if it was deliberate satire, but he is just re- he's got this book of poetry and he's reading her these awful aphorisms Mm. poetic aphorisms it's like oh listen to this this will change your mind and then just saying some (laughs) kind of well-meaning poetic gobbledygook mrs richards what are you doing 
Cleaning the floor. What's it look like? What's all this about killing yourself? I've had enough. You've been shut up here too long. Think of the world outside. Mrs. Richards, now please stop it. I want you to listen. My husband has to find the place looking nice. I'll not have them saying I did wrong in the end. You should meet some people. Make some nice friends. I haven't been out since we had Penny. That's six years. Well, take a holiday. Harry's off work. Hasn't had a job for four years. Well, think of the children. I mean, they're the only ones who matter. How can I keep a child clean? How much do they get? A pair of kids' shoes costs the cheapest. One pound twenty. Life is a gift, Mrs. Richards. You haven't the right to throw it away. Look, this is the food I buy each week for ourselves and the kids. Seven loaves of bread, 20 pounds of potatoes, three quarters of a pound of tea, one packet of porridge oats, two packets of cornflakes. It's always tomorrow. One packet of co-op soap powder, three or four pounds of cabbage, two sweets, custard powder, baked beans sometimes, tinned tomatoes sometimes, tinned spaghetti sometimes, lettuce when cheap. Food isn't everything. In fresh air, sunshine. <laughs> Mrs. Richards. Please listen to this, Mrs. Richards. Now, please listen. Life is mostly froth and bubble. Two things stand like stone. Kindness in another's trouble. Courage in your own. Who said that? Adam Lindsay Gordon. He was a poet. More of a fool, if you ask me. Well, wait there, Mrs. Richards. Now, wait, Mrs. Richards. Wait, Mrs. Richards. Listen to this. Please, Mrs. Richards. Mrs. Richards. Tell Harry to leave a note for the milkman. Two pints. Benny. Yes, ma'am. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. Hamlet. Go on, go and sit over there. Be a good girl. Please listen, Mrs. Richards. Please listen to this. Now, this will really help, Mrs. Richards. Please listen carefully. One that never turned his back, but marched breast forward, never doubted clouds would break. Don't do anything rash, Mrs. Richards. Every clown has a silver lining, Mrs. Richards! Mrs. Richards! She's a very proud woman, and I get the impression that she wasn't necessarily brought up at the East End, but she's kind of, she, she's been dragged down through the course of her life, and she has two small children, and she's rigorously cleaning the flat because she intends to kill herself, but she doesn't want to leave the place at a state because she's, she's proud. And it occurred to me watching it that, yes, she's addressing Mick Travis, but she looks like she's directly addressing the audience with her with her litany of poverty. It's like almost like yeah, she's breaking the fourth wall, I suppose. And she's talking to us. She's not talking to to Mick. Um, and she's just basically saying, "I've had enough. Um, I can't go on." Still, even though you've seen things in this film, you think, "Okay," you still think that this could have a happy ending. But then she sort of she goes into another room, disappears out of sight, and Mick, the drain pipe that he hold, he's holding on to, it comes off the wall when he falls down and um and then we later find or soon soon after find out that yes she did actually succeed in killing herself and that sort of sparks this further sort of spiral of degradation for mixed characters he, he ends up mingling with these tramps and trying to he's almost like a prophet or trying to what's the word is the word proselytize and ends up getting kind of <laughs> stoned by them and um and a barrel rolled over him <laughs> so he's kind of he's really reached the bottom he's really reached reached the pits hasn't he yes it reminded me of the stoning scene in life of brian where with the final one is dropping a big boulder onto him and it's like oh, in, this, yeah. in this one it's rolling yeah. a big barrel onto him <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> but no, that that scene with Mrs. Richards, I I found was very very powerful. Watching it now, not necessarily when I when I was watching it when I was younger, that is the the scene that would come to mind now when I think of this film. It seems as the film goes on, it gets more angry and less figurative. So it seems almost barely able to contain its anger as it goes along. So like the scene with the various African delegates and talking about the napalm, and then with the scene with the poverty. And it's not a focused satire. It, it Like you say, it's, it's, I think it's a satire on capitalism generally, but it's not focused on one particular thing. It's not even particularly themed as such as let's have a look at the various permutations of capitalism it's it's much more rambling than that but possibly in a good way it's less obvious but it does it, it gets less of an, a journey or an adventure as it goes along and just more just angry i think going back to rachel roberts as mrs richards when i was watching it the other day i wrote in my notes oh god when i realized who the actress was that was playing mrs richards because rachel roberts killed herself about seven or eight years after this film so it was quite poignant. Doesn't she also kill herself in Picnic at Hanging Rock? I can't quite remember how it ends. Because she, she plays a really foul character that you really She's want the to... headmistress, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, and I think she's really unpleasant. God, quite quite possibly, very yeah. stressed. And I think that character kills herself as well. So it's quite eerie. There was a couple of bits where I wondered whether it was trying to be... Um, again, what's the word here? Help me out, Adam. Is that a parable for... Some, something biblical i um, wondered about is, that it's the, the experimentation scene well i was thinking um the coat the gold suit that monty gifts him uh, there's also the scene in the church where yes indeed he gets breastfed but there's also all that food and there's children and at one point he's being led by these children to to the a road or the motorway and at one point he's got this big stick like a staff and uh, and there's apples. Apple apples are a recurring motif. And I just I was just wondering, is this all? Does this all? Does this mean something? But possibly it doesn't. The note I made about wrote down about it being sort of like a, a Christ allegory was the experimentation scene when he's he's stripped to a loincloth and he's wearing this contraption on his head to monitor his thoughts. And from that angle, it looks like a crown of thorns. Yeah. So he's sitting there in his loincloth with his crown of thorns. And he does. Yeah. He holds his arms at one point, palms up. It's not sort of fully outstretched in the you know the crucifixion pose, but he has the the arms slight by his side, but slightly at an angle with the palms up, which looked it looks very Christ-like. So I think there's I something going on there. Possibly, or maybe it's just Lindsay Anderson just trying to wrong foot people. Um, I think it's very tempting suit. to do. Yeah, the gold suit was was interesting because it didn't really pay off, did it? No, he's given this magical gold suit to keep him warm. And you think it's going to be indestructible or something, but it gets wrecked eventually as well. (laughs) I like the car radio. It happens in the early scenes when he's driving about that he's got his car radio on. That was quite nice. Company car, he drives it around. So a lot of the scenes of him doing his rounds as a coffee salesman is accompanied by terrible news on the on the radio to do with warfare and terrorism and things like that. And that has to be very pointed. Yeah, there's a mention, and I thought this was going to come back later, there's, there's a news report about dead cosmonauts. That's right, yes. And I've jotted that down because that was 45 minutes into the film and I, and I was thinking, I, I betcha that's going to come back. And it never did. Have you ever seen the film Sorry to Bother You? Which came out a few years ago probably three or four years ago no i don't want to say too much about it because that's a film 
uh, that I would urge people to see. It's a, a brilliant film, a very strange and satirical film, but it is clearly influenced a lot by this film. Okay. From fa- various things that happen, and I won't say what because it's a film that's really worth going in fresh to see. There's a particular plot point that happens in it that will completely pull the carpet from under you when the film's setting itself up to be one kind of film, then it just takes a left turn into another sort of film. It will pull the rug from under you, but also you'll go, oh, lucky man. But right. I, I highly recommend Sorry to Bother You. I've never even... I mean, I, I keep my finger on the pulse of modern film releases, and I listen to Kermit and Mayo religiously, and um, I, I don't even think I've heard of that. Who's Is that a British film? or No, American it's an American film. It's it's um, It's... Not a very memorable title, admittedly. It's about this black character gets a job in a call centre and he's told to do white voice in order to make more sales. So it's a, it's initially about him selling out his identity. Right. And it has a quite a similar tone to this. Is that it's very satirical and very angry, but also quite funny and comedic. Okay. Um, but the central part of th- certainly the first third of the film is this idea of, of this, this black character having to put on white voice very and i even i can't the white voice is so ridiculous even i can't really do it <laughs> hi there i'm yeah that proper sort of like all american almost 1950s milk toast yes <laughs> yeah um but yeah. then it takes on it does some very strange twists and turns but it's it's very like oh lucky man and and one one thing that happens in it in particular this is a proper <gasps> moment so it's a great film. There's another bit in this film, kind of black comedy sequence where someone kills himself and <laughs> takes someone else with him. As well. That's a notable scene, yes. We have Sir James Burgess, who is this mighty global financier or this this businessman who is the father of um, Helen Mirren. Mick Travis manages to get his telephone number and phones him up and, and cheekily, a bit of chutzpah, manages to get himself an appointment to meet Sir James and he arrives at the office. And this is where I mentioned earlier, Graham Crowden as Professor Stewart is, um, is distraught. And um, I think he's being fired or something, something is not going to his liking and he's um, protesting and loudly. And uh, Sir James's PA, his, his, his assistant is, is trying to um, calm Stuart down. And then it, it, the scene culminates essentially with um, Professor Stuart throwing himself out of a window and taking the personal assistant with him, which which then sets it up nicely for um, Sir James to make a, a rather perfunctory obituary to the dead professor and, and then appoints Michael as or Mick as his replacement. I like the fact that he's so ruthless, Sir James, that he never mentions or acknowledges that his personal assistant has just fallen from the window. Exactly. No, no, it's it's just the the, the more important one yes. that he that he acknowledges. He calls all the the the, at the heads of department in and say, "I've got a terrible announcement. Professor Stewart has died," but never mentions his assistant. And he reads from this book. So it's it's like a prepared obituary that had shades of Python or or Peter Cook. It does, doesn't it? He, very calmly, Sir James goes over to the bookshelf and selects this slim volume and calls in the heads of staff and then just reads this very dry obituary to. Um, Stuart, and then uh, moves on. Yeah, they have a 15-second silence, during during which point several of the heads of department are glancing at their watches. Yes. I think this is the point at which the film starts to get more angry. Yeah, but it's another example of of Travis being lucky. 
just by he just happened to be in the right he place just at the right tags time. Tags along, yeah, and becomes becomes his assistant, and from there becomes quite a. I mean, I don't know the the internal workings of the government, but he seems to become quite high up in the government as well, or something. Some I mean, well, it, it's beyond no, my my knowledge. My, my take, my reading of it was that Jeffrey Palmer's character is the is the corrupt politician on the on the take, and he invites Travis to meet him at Westminster to exchange brown envelopes, essentially. So he's Sir J- Travis is Sir James's envoy or representative, because Sir James himself is certainly not going to get involved with some, something as tawdry as, you know, handing over money for information or whatever it may be, or for, for documentation or for signed contracts or whatever, you know. So um, that's what, so Mick is tasked with, with doing the dirty work, essentially. You kind of think it must, pay off later in the film or there must be some reason for it you notice at um helen mirren's i forget her name is it patricia patricia her character at her flat in london there's a picture on the wall and it's clearly a canvas which has been cut or torn from a frame and the picture's just been tacked up on the wall a little bit later in the film you see patricia at her father's house she takes a knife and she tears at this picture this painting on the wall and rips the canvas out of that as well so clearly she's she's just collecting these old masters or whatever it has all these little details that don't necessarily don't necessarily go anywhere it's full of those little things is it those little touches the end scene the again the film folds in on itself at the end because we then see when he's really down on his luck mick gets cast in the film we're watching. Yes, very meta. So Lin- Lindsay Anderson turns up, he's casting the lead for his film, Oh Lucky Man. He auditions Mick Travis, who is successful in the role, and then everyone has a big party. And I don't know if that's supposed to be sarcastic, but I found it quite joyous, where everyone's just dancing around to the the, the, the rocked-up version of the theme tune. By this point as well, Mick has gone from this fairly optimistic character, by this point in the film, right at the end of the film, and he's despondent, he's bitter. Oh yes, we have the callback, don't we? So the very first scene is he's the, he's the only one of the coffee salesmen in training who can do an authentic, you know, warm smile. They say smile. Exactly. So he, he's very charismatic, very mm-hmm. confident and relaxed. He, the others are already awkward and can't really do a convincing smile. And he's just like, good afternoon, I'm Mick Travis. And, <laughs> and by this end scene, the director who's on camera is actually Lindsay Anderson, who's the director. So he says to Mick, says, smile. And Mick says, why? What's there to smile about? Lindsay Anderson slaps him with a file <laughs> over the face. With the with the script. Script. By the way, in If, you know the story in If, um, there's that famous scene with Christine Noonan where they're being tigers wrestling or fighting each other on the floor of this coffee bar. When he was rehearsing, um, at one point she slapped him hard over the face to get him angry, to make him throw himself into the role more. So I'm wondering whether that was a bit of a... That could be a Lindsay reference. Anderson was, was possibly referencing yes, that, maybe. Yes, I bet it's a reference to that. Um, there's a bit as well where he, they're taking photographs of him for this casting and they give him some books to hold and then they give him a gun. Lindsay Anderson wants him to brandish the gun in a more aggressive way and he, again, echoes of his character in If. So you could almost think that Mick Travis is playing Mick Travis in If. It's a little bit kind of tangled in inside out isn't it which i quite like it is. I, I like it when yeah. a film will fold in on itself like that not enough films do that and it's, it comes full circle almost well it does i suppose it does because we then assume that the, that after the party the next day they start shooting a lucky man yes i think and so. they're in the, the coffee factory 
it does end with this party scene where all of the cast, except I think Ralph Richardson, are just having a big knees up. Oh yeah, he's not there, is he? No, no. He's, he's gone home. Is he? <laughs> He's decided to expensive. have an early night. Arthur Lowe's there. It's quite nice seeing Arthur Lowe dancing to rock music. The last sort of freeze frame bit is McDowell just kind of, is he, he's just kind of punching the air, shouting. It's lovely. And then the music, Alan Price's music keeps playing. Yeah, like I said, I don't know if it's supposed to be sarcastic or if it's supposed to be genuinely joyous. Again, it also reminded me a bit of the end of um, Bugsy Miller where it just descends into a big party. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's singing along. Dare I say it, could it just be Lindsay Anderson couldn't think of a way, decent, <laughs> proper way of ending the film and just... <laughs> I do have a favourite line. Probably not, not not necessarily my favourite line in the film, but it's a line that I rewound <laughs> the the bit to, um, to jot it down, to make sure I got it down correctly. And it was... Um, a member of Alan Price's band in the van. Mick at some at one point questions what why the band are tr- in this beat up old van or what you know what their plan is or what they're doing or where they're going. And one of the musicians says, "We're just trying to make some bread, man." <laughs> <laughs> I just like a cheesy joke. Uh, it's when two of the band members are playing chess, and Alan Price says, "If you don't take that castle soon, the National Trust will." Oh yes, that was a good line. <laughs> We've touched upon this as well. Uh, is there a bit or a moment or an element that you could do without? Okay, I, I hate I hate looking at films of yesteryear or TV of its day and trying to assign to it modern sensibilities. The, the, the phrase that people use now is it's it's of its time. In fact, when I started watching this film on Amazon Prime, it came up with about um, a dozen um, little warnings saying contains blackface, contains nudity, contains smoking, contains swearing, contains violence, cont- you know, um, contains suicide. I, I don't want to condemn the Arthur Lowe blackface because it's not appropriate now, but you know, it was, was it appropriate then? Maybe not. I don't know, but people just kind of accepted it. Considering Lindsay Anderson had his doubts himself, so that even the director had his True. doubts about it. I mean, True. Uh, my, my thought on it is that. A, it's not really my place to decide because I'm white. Mm-hmm. But also, I found it more surreal than anything. I, I took it as part <laughs> of the strangeness of the film. But then, you know, if if people who are actually black found it objectionable or unpleasant or made them uncomfortable, then then that will override my <laughs> any feelings I have about it. I'm not going to condemn it, but I could have done without it. Or if they were going to do it, obviously have a, a proper black actor. But also that, that whole scene dragged a bit that was the one scene that i found dragged yeah although i will also mention and i think it it's not a problem in and of this film itself but it's also a trope it's this idea of homeless people being this horde that will turn on you and you, you see it in a lot of things of just yeah you know suddenly well-meaning goes and takes the takes the soup to the homeless people and they are just they're ungrateful and they just will just attack and gang up and beat the character up and or just just be this almost non-human rabble uh, which you see a lot well one woman throws herself on this fire doesn't she yes yes it's very strange and, and i think for this film you could say it's part of the, the weirdness and part of the surrealism of it but it's it's such a trope it is again like theater of blood it happens in of course yeah michael Hort- is it michael horton that gets attacked by the i think it's him tramps. and i think also if you're satirizing capitalism it's punching down if you're also having a go at homeless people well he's reading them improving poetry <laughs> <laughs> who wouldn't want somebody reading them improving poetry who wins I mean this is maybe a bit obvious 
but you never know, you might surprise me. Who wins your award for outstanding person in front of the camera? Malcolm McDowell, with a special mention for Rachel Roberts. I think I'll concur with that. I, I think a lot of the actors, like your Arthur Lowe or your Graham Crowden or Ben Harris or uh, even Brian Glover, they're doing their thing. <laughs> yeah. So you're, get, you're getting the character that that actor will bring. And Graham, Graham Crowden's in it playing two characters, but they're essentially both Graham Crowden doing the Graham Crowden thing. I've never seen him do any other part. He's 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 always the same. He always plays doctors or scientists or professors. Uh, so th- this is a tricky one because so, so many of the people behind the camera were also in front of the camera. But who wins your award for outstanding per- person behind the camera? Well, I'm going to say I'm going to say Lindsay Anderson, obviously. I didn't make a note of cinematography or you know anything like that to be honest with you when I was watching it um, but the music is fantastic of course and and Alan Price yes he's in front him, him and the band are in front of the camera but um, I'm going to give them an honorary mention for being behind the camera in, this, in terms of you know, the music well I think we've done this film if not justice we've covered it well there's a lot to it that we've not even touched on yes it's, there's, there's so much in this film it's kaleidoscopic yeah it, it really is and you have to like films of this period you have to like long films you have to be prepared for longueurs and you have to be on your own i think when you watch it <laughs> don't watch it with a friend unless you're with a, a cine literate friend maybe like like adam was thank you for coming on to chat about oh lucky man tyler um before we go is there anything you'd like to plug oh, well thank you very much for inviting me adam um really really enjoyed it really enjoyed watching the film again as you alluded to at the beginning of this episode i host podcast called goon pod which uh, you were very instrumental in helping me launch because i had wanted to start a podcast and originally i decided to just do a podcast where i talked about episodes of the goon show and you very very wisely because you were my first guest way back 12 months ago you very wisely advised me that i should broaden the scope and i'm a very wise person well if you hadn't done that i doubt i'd be still doing it to be honest because what i find is although we do enjoy we, we do cover individual goon shows you know we, but we, we cover films we cover we've covered spike's poetry for example spike milligan's poetry uh, the life of harry seacom michael benton's potty time um the magic christian film with peter sellers and spikes in that as well and lots and lots and lots of sort of tv shows and, and things like that i've had i've had mark comedian mark thomas um uh, margaret cabon smith been on david quantic um ed reardon from ed reardon's week christopher douglas i was really pleased to get him because i love that show on radio 4. jane milligan jane milligan recently absolutely yep and i've got uh, as i said, got dirk mags coming up and, and uh, a, a number of big guests in the future scheduled so um seek it out it's on all the usual places. Uh, there's about 60, nearly 60 episodes so far. Adam has been on three of them. You've came on Bed Sitting Room, Dr. Strangelove, which was great as well. And, um, and the first show, which was about uh, Man Who Never Was, Goon Show episode. And also your um, your lovely uh, uh, co-presenter on RetroTube, Heather, has also been on. G- giggling and putting, putting me <laughs> off my stride. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to Cardboard Cinema Club. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I've yet to make dedicated accounts for this podcast, like the lazy oaf I am, but you can find me plus the co-host of my sibling podcast, RetroTube, on Twitter at retro underscore tube or email on retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back soon with another guest and another film, but until then, cheerio! Cheerio. Cheerio.